Hello, I'm pleased to be joined today by Brown Advisory Fund Manager Mick Dillon. Mick manages the firm's £1.9 billion Global Leaders Fund, which is part of a £5 billion wider strategy. Mick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. So um, as a global equity fund manager, it seems remiss uh, not to start by asking you about just what a testing environment we've been in. Last year, historically bad performance for bonds. Uh, equity's not doing much better, really. Uh, and not long ago this year, people were discussing a financial crisis. Um, you know, do you think we're over the worst of it now? Yeah, well, tough question straight out the gate. Um, the short answer is I don't know. Mm. Um, our, our brains are really hardwired to see patterns. And, and so we all naturally reach back in history and we look for analogues of what have we seen before and what lessons can we learn. And the, the obvious one that everybody's reaching for here is the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s in the US. And just to frame that a bit, it was a similar pattern of sharply rising interest rates um, generating a liquidity crisis, which we've just seen with banks going bust, in this case, savings and loans. Um, about a 1,000 of them in the end went bust out of 3,000. So a lot more happened in that crisis than has happened so far here today. Yeah, You get these timing mismatches whereby people want their deposits, but they're in long instruments. And this is exactly what we've just seen happen in, in the US. And so the next issue, though, is that in the US, what was a liquidity crisis became a credit crisis. And we mm. definitely haven't seen that so far. Um, and so when we think about what, what does that mean, it's entirely possible because it's happened before. It, is it plausible that we get a credit crisis? Maybe. But, but what really matters for, as investors is, is it probable? And I don't, I'm not sure at the moment that it is. We're only one year in. When they, plus or minus, they started raising rates about a year ago. Yeah. That transmission um, mechanism normally actually takes about a year. So we're only at the start of seeing the impacts of what do those sharply rising rates mean. The other thing is that rates have risen. Um, if we go back and look at, at all of the last rate rises cycles, this one's been very quick, way quicker than, than any of the last four or five cycles. So um, I, I guess where I'm trying to get to is, it's, it's not clear yet, but also if you look at the volatility in the bond markets, it would suggest that, that, that we've seen the first shock, but we should probably think there are some aftershocks still to come. Um, one thing, I guess, to consider about that, though, is yeah. that um, the stock markets, the equity markets, rebound long before you get to the bottom of any crisis. Right, it's, they're it's, very forward-looking. Happens, they're very forward-looking. It happens every single time. It's normally somewhere in the vicinity of a year. They, they start rebounding a year before the economy stabilises and, and bottoms out. And it's also pretty unusual to see two big down years in succession. It's happened before. It's not out of you know the realms of probability, um, but, but it's unusual. And so when you sort of think about it, the classic saying is, it's about time in the market, not trying to time the market. And I yeah. think this is really important because those rebounds can be really sharp. And it's actually some of the biggest alpha days in the market uh, when we're seeing that turning point as, you, as you're coming back out. We, we do all of our investing on a five-year view. And, mm -hmm. and one of my favorite questions is, will I care about this in five years' time? Like, do, is this issue going to matter for our investments in five years' time? Right. And, and so the, the issue in general might matter, but will it matter for the companies that we, we're invested in? And you'd be amazed how many issues 
you don't care about in five years. So I'm thinking about COVID, right? We, we, we were just talking about the, the renovation in this studio pre-COVID, right? Yeah. And that was only three years ago. Sure. So, so by the time we get to five years, I'm pretty sure we're not going to care about COVID very much anymore. I mean, personally, I don't care very much about it today. Um, and so that, depending on, on your geography, but, but also yeah. thinking about your time horizon is one of the really, really important parts here. I'd flip it and I'd say one of the interesting things right now is mm. because we don't know the short term, but we can probably be a bit more confident in the long term, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there right now. Mm. And particularly even in 2022, we saw a lot of opportunity as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, lots of interesting stuff for us to come on to there. I suppose first thing says, can you can you give me the elevator pitch for global leaders? Yes. I mean, what, why, why should I pick this fund over a global tracker? Yes. It's not no. too rude to ask. No, 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 it's not. It's, a, it's That's the whole point, right? Global passive investing is a perfectly good way to invest. Mm. Um, so, so we think that we do something different and we've got 30 to 40 companies and they help their customer. That The ideal company for us solves a problem for their customer in a unique way. Uh, in other words, they're creating a ton of value for the people that they deliver products or services for. Um, and when you do that, everything else follows. Um, you, you can grow, you can take market share, you can create opportunities for your employees. Ultimately, as shareholders, we want a high return on invested capital. Yeah. So we, you know, we look at companies with 20% more return on invested capital. Um, but everything that we want comes from a happy customer who comes back again and again and again. And, and what we end up with, if we look at the portfolio, is that we have two to three times the return on invested capital than the benchmark, which, which basically means that they're two to three more times efficient in turning their revenues into cash flow, which is, as shareholders, what you ultimately get. They're growing a little bit faster than the benchmark. And today, you get the same free cash flow yield as the benchmark. So in other words, for the same price, you're getting assets that are twice as good that are growing a little bit faster. Now, over any 12-month period, as we just discussed, anything could it's happen. It's not guaranteed that. But over a four or five-year yeah. period, if I'm buying for the same price as the tracker, I'm buying companies that I think are demonstrably better that are growing faster. We think that works over time. Okay. I suppose that begs the question, I mean, uh, you know, markets aren't stupid. Other investors aren't stupid. You know, why are there those opportunities? What are others missing? Oh, this is an incredibly interesting question. It comes back down to something we've already touched on, which is timing and, and ability to take a long-term view. It's really hard. If you're, if you're sitting there, I'll, I'll give you an example at the moment. Yeah. We're looking at a building products company in America. Guess what's going on? You've got residential real estate slowing down. You've got questions around commercial real estate. It, like there's all these questions. What we're looking at is a company that's the number one in its field, terrific customer outcome. They can serve their customers in ways that other people can't. Um, in five years' time, do we still think people will need buildings, either renovating them or building new ones? Yes. Do we know what the path looks like? No, we don't. It's, it's going to be wobbly. It's, you know, yeah. it's almost inevitable. There's going to be a downturn between here and in five years' time. But it doesn't matter if they're generating a great customer outcome, great returns for shareholders, and we can buy it cheap. Now, guess what? Now it's cheap because everybody's worried about the next one or two years and we're looking out on a five-year view. So that timing is incredibly important. The other bit is um, getting to behavioral economics, which is the, there's a huge inefficiency that the uh, you know, psychologists or behavioral economists, they call themselves economists, they're all psychologists. Okay. Um, and, and they have enormous fun picking holes in emerging market hypothesis and all the rest of it. 
But the the reason is because it's true, because it's human nature and we're hardwired to avoid losses. We don't like taking risks. There's mm. all these behavioral traits. And, and to get to the heart of your question is, we think there's two big inefficiencies in the market. One is people don't look long enough or they're not matched up with the time horizon of their investments or they don't have the ability to look over five years because they're worried, they're worried about what's going to happen. Yeah. And the second one is, how do you embed behavioral economics to actually make better outcomes, not worse outcomes, mm. which the psychologists have had in a ton of fun highlighting over time. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it as we go along. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose to sort of set you up on that, I mean, what we, when we spoke before, you mentioned you have an, an investing coach. Yes. Which, which struck yes. me as interesting. I mean, of course, there are lots of investment consultants. Maybe other people do this more than I realize. But can you discuss how that came about and how it works? Yeah, uh, so I'll... And who it is, if uh, you can tell us. I oh, don't no, think no, you no, can. no, there's not very many competitive advantages. There's no way I'm telling you that bit. But but go. I'll get to the sort of philosophy of it, which yeah. is that so you can tell I'm Australian from the accent. Mm. So, you know, it's stereotypical. I love sport and uh, all sport. Um, but there's no successful sporting teams out there that don't have a coach. Um, and by the way, it's not just sporting teams. Um, surgeons have coaches, uh, pilots have coaches, opera singers have coaches. There's, you look at all these fields and then at the very top of these fields, tennis, my, my personal favourite is tennis players, although he's retired now as Roger Federer. Um, Federer, when he got a new coach about five years ago, having had no Grand Slam wins for five years, then went and won three in the next two years with a new coach. And it's mm. like, you can't say... That bless the guy who was 37 years old. You can't say that a 37-year-old who'd been at the top of his game for over a decade didn't learn something new off his coach, right? Yeah. Well, guess what? It's exactly the same for us. And so the job of the coach is to help us understand how we can get better. And, and it's really about thinking and planning of how are we going to be better investors tomorrow than we are today? And what is it that we can learn either using deliberate practice, um, just by using data and analysis to understand behavioral mistakes quite often that we're making. But, but the real behavioral stuff all comes in from the coach, whereby you sit there and she can see, oh, you're exhibiting loss aversion, you're exhibiting risk aversion or regret aversion. And these are all psychological terms in the behavioral economics literature. Mm. Um, here's how you can change your investment process to make it better. And so what we've actually done is we, we started with one investment process, everybody does. It turns out that's all about identifying good companies. Well, that's, that's great, but it's only half the game. The other half of the game is buying, selling, sizing. And that's the real portfolio manager skill is, hang on, how do I buy? Um, how do I scale in? Yeah. How do I size? When do I top? When do I tail? When do I trim? When do I add? How do I sell? Do I, do I just sell all of it? Do I sell part of it? Do I, if I'm selling for valuation, should it be different from selling from a broken thesis? This is where the coach, we sit down every quarter with our coach and we go through, we look at all of, all of the trading we've done, all of, we go through our journals and we sit there and try and find these patterns of behavior. And it's been phenomenal for defining for us a whole bunch of rules in our process mm. that have enabled us to quite literally add alpha in ways that were got nothing to do with picking good companies and everything to do with buying, selling, sizing. So it's, it's been a great journey. Um, it's just part of the learning culture at Brown. I'll be really honest. I, I'd never done it before. We joined Brown and the, the uh, head of research, Tim Hathaway, said, 
hey, we've, we've been trying to work out how we can get better as fund managers. Mm. Um, and what we've worked out is we've got all the data, we can do all the analysis, but that's not enough. What we need is a coach. And then, then we found this team. Uh, okay. So it's a, thing, it's a thing across brown advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, all the fund managers do it. It's people, people. And do you compete to get the best coaches or is, is it not quite uh, like that? No, no, no. It's the same coach. It's okay, the same, so coach, same, same coach. We, we do it for everybody. Oh. Um, we basically pay them to come in and beat us up every quarter. Um, but the learning is really important because everybody's different. Yeah. So, so say for Bertie Thompson and me, where the, the co-PMs on Your Global Leaders, yeah. Yeah, for us, it's different what, what our behavioural traits are and, and the things that we do really well and the things we do really badly are very different to some of the other fund managers. So it, it all has to be personalised. Mm. Now, one rule you mentioned, which struck me as interesting, it's, hard, it's not unheard of, but I think after you know getting this coach, you implemented this stop-loss rule, 20% stop-loss yep. rule. So when a stock falls 20% from where you bought it or over a year, you either sell it uh, or you have to buy more, right? Yes. When, when did you implement that and you know how's it worked? So, so this was one of the first rules our coach came up with. She was This was in January 2016. Okay, and so, so quite soon after the launch in 2015. Yeah, 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 exactly, within a year of the launch. Uh, and she had already noticed more than once us exhibiting loss aversion. Now, loss aversion, mm. I'm sure everybody knows it, is that we feel the pain of losses twice as much as we feel pleasure. Uh, and it's a very, very basic human instinct. It's system one from Kahneman. And right, Thomas. you don't want to see red. In the, no, 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 no. People look at the red and they're feeling pain and you literally have an emotional reaction to it. Um, and so um, for us, uh, that was exhibiting in, we would have a review of down 20%, but then do nothing. So we'd always had this down 20% review, but then it could result in no action. And, and our coach comes in one day and she goes, hang on, think about this from an outcome perspective. If the shares go up, you should have bought more. Right. <laughs> if they go down, you're wrong and you should have got out. Um, hang on, why is doing nothing a good idea? And of course, you know, we couldn't define it. And we went, right, let's trial. Here's the rule. We're either buying more or getting out. And it's been terrific. And here's why. Because when you're down there, She's right. The only wrong thing to do is do nothing. Mm. It, it's it's either it's a bargain moment, it's a twenty percent off sale. Yeah, I don't know about you. When I'm at supermarket, and it's twenty percent off. I buy more, right? Well, and, and and if I'm wrong and it's it's an old product, then you don't buy it. You sell it. You get rid of it, right? Right. Um. So the, the the behavioral economics is we want to run away and hide, and this is part of the fight or flight response. The the real thing we should do is act and act now. And so for us, um. You're right. You described it exactly. It's down 20%. You have to buy more or you have to get out. Mm. Um, and that that rule we've iterated multiple times over the years, meaning that was the first rule in 2016. By the time we got to 2019, again, we're sitting there with our coach and she says, um, when you sell, you sell the whole thing. So that's a big capital allocation. We're only 30 to 40 companies. So that's, you know, two, 3% of the strategy in one, one hit. Um, but what's the rule on buying? Mm. And, and we didn't have one. And so we looked at the statistics and looked at the data and the answer we came up with was make it meaningful. So for us now, we have to add a meaningful amount to the capital base, meaning a third, a quarter, a half. The, the biggest one we've ever done was we doubled a position mm -hmm. on a drawdown review one time. Um, and so that, that make it meaningful is getting back to shifting the odds in your favor, probabilities, payoffs, all the things that you, you're supposed to be thinking about. But the, the rule, really, the value of it is none of what I've described, and it's about changing the behavior in the room. And, right. And this is where it gets it really... It turns a negative into, a, I don't know about a positive, but something you have agency over. 
Yes, exactly. You're controlling the inputs now rather than worrying about the outputs, which is just what's happened to yeah. the output is what's happened to you. It's the input, exactly getting agency over it. I wouldn't ever say that we look forward to them because we don't. It's not fun, right? You've just lost 20% of people's money. It's terrible. Mm. But what I can tell you now is rough numbers, whenever we sell, we've got a 70% hit rate. And when we buy, we've got a 70% hit rate. So it almost doesn't matter what we're going to do. I mean, of course it matters. It matters intensely. But it's it, statistically, it doesn't matter what we do. As in 77 of the time, either way, it's, it's accretive to the value. We're going to get it right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. And, and, and that change has changed the psychology in the room because you go from, you know, oh, we've lost 20% of our money. Mick, you know, you're an idiot. What are we doing here? To, okay, this is not good, but I tell you what, we know when we're under pressure and we're in the foxhole on, on these days, 70% of the time we make good decisions. So let's just make a good decision yeah. today. And that psychology change is enormous. Okay. Let's talk about one of these decisions because, you know, stuff about the c customer outcomes, you know, obviously it all sounds very appealing. Yeah. Um, let's talk about one that went wrong, I suppose. Oh. Tencent, yes. um, I think, w was it hit this 20% loss and then you had to make a decision last year. Yes. I think after a fairly short holding period. Can you discuss, you know, what happened there and what mistake, if any, you feel was made? Yeah. So, so it was 20, I think it was 2018 that we first invested in okay. Tencent. So not, think, not such a short holding period. Yeah. Medium for us. Our mm. holding period is, um, actually half the portfolio has been there since day one. So, right. so our turnover is really low. We, um, quite honestly, if we can find two or three ideas a year, we're, we're thrilled. Um, and our turnover, our name turnover since inception is about 10%, 10 yeah. to 12%. So was, in other words, it was a bit higher last eight, year. Eight to ten. To, yeah, it was last year. Yeah, right. yeah well, let's come back to that actually. Um, it was higher last year, but since inception, it's about 10 to 12%. So eight to 10 year holding period. So long, long holding periods, mm. um, which by the way, when we first set up that drawdown review rule, we were a little bit unsure. We're thinking, what's this going to do? And the answer is, it only a couple of once or twice a year. We sit there and go, no, we've made a mistake. Let's let's sell. Let's come back to Tencent. So there's a couple okay. of really important things on this one. The first one is whenever we uh, exit something, mm. about six months afterwards, we do what's called an after action review. Mm. Um, and so our after action review, we exited in October, November timeframe. So it's it's literally coming up now. Yeah. So we haven't actually done it yet, but, but I can tell you a couple of lessons we've learned already, which is... Um, I spoke before about refinements to the rule. There was the 2019 refinement on um, make it meaningful in terms of have a rule around how much you're going to buy. Another one, and, and we're doing this work right now, and Tencent is a trigger for this, which is if you do two drawdown reviews in, and we're trying to work out the time frame in say six months, is that a warning sign that something's really, really wrong? Like we've really made a mistake here. And last time we thought we weren't making a mistake and we bought more, but actually... The market's really telling us we're wrong here. Right. Um, and, and so no, nobody, I, I said before, we run at a 70% hit rate on, on the drawdowns. Our hit rate since inception in absolute terms is two-thirds. So two-thirds of the time we get it right, but a third of the time we get it wrong. So we've got to be careful. No, nobody ever runs at 100, right? Yeah. So we've got to be careful here about um, every time we go in, knowing actually probabilistically we're going to make mistakes. And and so for us, back to Tencent, um, we're now looking. We're now going back, looking at our rules, saying, "Well, is there? If we go back and look at, at back all the way to inception, and we see that there's multiple drawdown triggers in a period of time, and we haven't worked out the period of time yet, this is the analysis we're doing with that coach. Can we work out that actually the second drawdown review, or the third, or whatever it is, 
we don't do a drawdown review, we're just wrong. And we right. So we haven't got to that yet. But this is this is the continuous learning. This is the bit about having the coach, which is always about how can I be a better investor tomorrow than I am today by learning about things that that between Bertie and myself we can we can improve on. So um, a, a lot in that. One, um, there's another um, potential process improvement that we're looking at here as well, okay. which is around um, Annie Duke, who um, is a former professional poker player, mm-hmm. and she's written a couple of really good books. One is effectively about uh, investing, and it's all about probability and dealing with probabilities. Mm. And the second one just came out, and it's called Quit, um, and it's about learning when to quit, which, of course, in poker is incredibly important is, you know, when, when do I get out? Right. When do I get out you, of here because I think they've got a better hand. Hands, right? yeah. You've got to fold most hands, exactly. Um, but it's incredibly important to investing, back to what we were just talking about, which is uh, I, I think I might be right, but actually the market's telling me, well, well, just get out. There's plenty of opportunities out there. Go and do something else. And so one of the things that she talks about in quit is what's called kill triggers, uh, which means... Um, if I see X or if I see Y, irrespective of everything that else is going on, I'm just going to get out. Okay. Now, so was ha- there one of those for Tencent? No, we no. haven't done that before. So this is exactly. So this is one of the ones where we sit there and we go, okay, let's think about kill triggers. Let's think about multiple drawdown reviews in in a short period of time. So there's always something that you can learn and structurally. The, the beauty of the coach with the data is you can go back and measure and test it. So you can go back and you say, actually this would have triggered X, Y, and Z times and it only would have worked three out of 10. Oh, well, don't do that one. Mm. Oh, it would have worked eight out of 10? My God, what, what are we doing here? Get that in now. Mm. You know. So so this is their constant learning and, and how the coach has really helped us over time. Okay, sure. So quickly, just on Tencent, why yeah. did you sell? <laughs> yeah, we did. Well, look, quite frankly, we did because we were struggling with um, both the probability that we were going to get the cash flow returns that we were expecting. So, mm. so when we do any investment, we do two things. Yeah. The first one is we assign a probability to the base case, and then we assign a potential return to the base case. You know, we, what's your IRR? What what are we going to get out of this? The second thing we do is um, put a probability on our bear case. Now we we do a bull case, but we ignore mm. that. Ignore that. And then you sit there and you look at the expected returns. And we had two big problems that are, that had really come out in Tencent. The first one was we were no longer convinced in our probability of the base case and by default increasing probability on the bear case. Yeah. Every time we've seen that we've, in our data, that is a huge red flag for us. Every single time we start just discussing changing the probability of the base case, the answer is we're having the wrong discussion. It's what are we even doing here? Right. <laughs> right? Particularly if you're taking that probability down. If you're thinking about taking the probability up, that, that's different. But the second you're thinking about taking the probability down, there's something really fundamentally wrong. The second problem we're having with Tencent, which is the regulatory environment in multiple parts of their business, be it in cloud, in gaming, in, in the social media, had all changed, the mm. regulatory environment, which means the potential cash flows were both more uncertain to the probability, but also none of them were going up. They were all coming down. And so we're sitting there looking at this investment saying, hang on, we're no longer sure about our IRRs and the cash flows. We're also no longer sure about the probability. Everything we do is about maximizing our return on time and maximizing the research return on time and then the capital allocation return on time. 
And if we're sitting there having discussion after discussion after discussion of, do we think we'll get this IRR? Do we think it's right? A, right. Why are we here? There are move four, to somewhere where you have forty thousand listed companies out there. Yeah, we've only got thirty to forty of them. Let's just go and put the capital somewhere else. Yeah. Okay, we're slightly running short of time, Nick, but a few more Sorry. questions I, to, to ask you if that's all right. Yeah. Um, you've got exposure to multiple exchanges, uh, Deutsche Börse, uh, B3 yes. in Brazil, the London Stock Exchange. You know, there's been a lot of concern about UK equities for yes. a while now, yeah. about, about companies listed in the UK. And something new we've seen is that even, you know, perhaps larger companies are thinking of, of switching to the US. Of leaving, you know, yeah, CRH, exactly. admittedly, doesn't make much money in the UK. No. Uh, but Shell, you know, yeah. again, doesn't make much money in the UK, but it's a kind of totemic UK stock. And even they apparently the have considered yeah. leaving. I mean... Yeah. What, what 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 do you think about that? What are you are you are you concerned about that or or not? Yeah, look, there's there's so, so I'll start with the UK companies. There's yeah. a number of UK companies we think are really interesting right now. As an mm. example, we're invested in Unilever. Mm -hmm. I think I think it's incredibly interesting. We think that's a double digit IRR over five years. Okay. Um, London Stock Exchange you just mentioned. We just we just invested in that in in the recent um, placing that they did was was where right. we built the bulk of our position recently. Um, in London Stock Exchange, and just to, just to pick up on it a little bit, it's a bit of a misnomer actually. It's, it's London Stock Exchange Group, and actually, it turns out the keywords these days is Group, not London Stock Exchange. Yes, it's a beautiful brand, but let's be honest, it's less than five percent of the revenues of the company now. Right. So, so as a company, it it the London Stock Exchange matters, but it's at the margin. It's literally one twentieth of, of their revenues. Mm. The, the two thirds of the revenues at the group actually come out of data services. It's the old Thomson Reuters data business. Um, and that business is, um, we think they can improve the returns on that business enormously. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at London Stock Exchange Group, and of course there's other bits like the London Clearinghouse and, and, and other parts to the group. But, but when we look at does, to get to the number of the question, does it matter whether or not Shell is listed in the UK for the returns on the London Stock Exchange? And unfortunately, the answer is no, it doesn't. Right. When it, to separate your question slightly differently, when we look at the UK market, we see a ton of companies that look really interesting right now. Because, because of the valuation. Exactly. Right. The returns on capital are great. They've been great for a long time. Their customer outcomes are terrific. I, I won't name the companies because a heap of them are on our ready-to-buy list. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk about Unilever and London Stock Exchange because it's particular already public, or, public knowledge that we're yeah. invested in them. Um, but, but there's a number of companies in the UK that we think look really interesting right now. And so but it, it, it's... For us, the opportunity set looks super interesting. Um, you always worry about home team bias, of course. Um, right, you're based in London, yeah. We're, we're, ba we're based here. Are, are we just picking the companies that are here? Um, but when it, it doesn't matter, I'm Australian, right? It doesn't matter. We look, we look across the globe. We look everywhere. We're invested, by the way, just so people know. We're invested in India, Indonesia, Brazil. You just mentioned. Mm. Um, we, we're. Only 30 companies, 31 today, but we are literally a global um, investment fund. And when we look at Deutsche Börse, B3, London Stock Exchange, ultimately their financial market infrastructure, these are companies that the financial system really can't run without. Deutsche Börse controls Eurex, the, the European Futures Exchange. Boy, did we need that last year. Mm. Right? They also control EEX, uh, the European Energy Exchange. Boy, we needed that last year. So when there's times of volatility, actually these companies help people by distributing the risk. Um, and it's again, it's something that LSE does as well. So 
Um, not very worried uh, personally. I don't. I live here. I don't like that big companies are thinking of leaving. Yeah. Uh, I, I've moved here. I don't understand why they want to move away. I love this market. I love the country. So it, to me, it doesn't make sense. But to our investment, it, it, in a sense, it doesn't really matter that much. Our, our returns from London Stock Exchange will become on their ability to drive better uses and sources for the data okay. for their end clients. Mm. Okay, Mick. Well, I think that's all we've got time for, sadly. Interesting note to finish on. Um, so last thing says, well, thank you very much for coming in. Great to speak to you. No, no worries. Thank you very, very much for having me in. Thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Please look out for more of our podcasts soon. Full disclosure, London Stock Exchange Group earns an 18.2% interest in CityWire.